Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Marriage on a Tightrope Without a Net. I am so... (laughs) (laughs) Would you guys stop? I have to introduce you before you start laughing. Okay, so I am so happy tonight to have here in the studio in the underground bunker with me, at least by Zoom, the wonderful hosts of the up-and-coming podcast called Marriage on a Tightrope. This is Katie and Alan Mount. Good morning to you. Good morning, RFM. Thanks for having us, and sorry for spoiling it with the laughter. The laughing, yes. The laughing. (laughs) Well, it's 7 o'clock in the morning, my time, 8 o'clock in the morning, your time. I want to go through a few things with you first off, okay, just to lay the groundwork, because I think probably most of my listeners will be familiar with your podcast. Not all of them, apparently, but most of them will. I want to give you a chance to introduce your podcast to them. I will say that under the same umbrella that I podcast on, that's Mormon Discussions Podcast, there there are other podcasts, and one of the most famous of those is Marriage on a Tightrope. Once again, the hosts are Katie and Alan Mount. Now, this is a situation where they have a podcast, and it deals with challenges and issues that can arise in a mixed faith marriage because you're both <clears throat> because you're both in a mixed faith marriage, right? That's right. Katie is uh, Greek Orthodox. <laughs> <laughs> Katie's in. You're out, right, Alan? That's correct, sir. Just to put it as briefly as I can, because I know our time is limited. We have an hour and twenty minutes tops, but I know that. You both served a mission together in the same mission, correct? We did. Was that Spain or Barcelona or something like that? Yeah, it was Barcelona, Spain. Yes. You see, Katie, I do listen to your podcast. Oh, <laughs> ouch. We'll get to that. Believe me, we'll get to that, okay? Because Katie does not listen to Radio Free Mormon, and yet she was kind enough, gracious enough, perhaps inebriated enough to accept an invitation to come on the Radio Free Mormon podcast. And I'm really glad that you did, Katie, because frankly, you're the best part of the podcast. (laughs) I got a a text message from a friend last night and she said, I see that you're being interviewed by RFM. And I said, yes. And she's like, that is so badass. And even though (laughs) I do not, I'm not like I'm post-Mormon, I'm definitely rooting for you and good luck. (laughs) So, Well, I want you to know this is not about putting you on the hot seat. This is just about finding out yeah. about how you're doing, how Alan's doing. And I'll get into more of what I want to get into after we get through this opening introductory segment. So sure. at some point, I mean, you guys got married in the temple. Sure. Yes, sir. Salt Lake. You're both faithful, observant, LDS. I'm sure you, your plan was you're going to live uh, happily together forever as a family, as a marriage unit, and also having that in the church, correct? Yes. That was the plan. And then at some point, um, I, I believe Alan violated his covenants or something <laughs> and he broke, he broke with the plan. Alan, is that correct? Yeah. You know, it was, I just, I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I, got, I got, I got lazy. You got lazy. I think probably you got the opposite of lazy and you got really interested in doing study and research. Is that right? Yeah. That's the short of it. That's probably the quickest way to, uh, to, to state what happened. Yeah. And I don't want to go into the details of that. By the way, for all my audience, if you want to hear more details about their story, I encourage you to go to the Marriage on a Tightrope podcast and listen to Katie and Alan talk about the challenges that they face being a mixed faith 
marriage, not only with each other, but also with their children. They're very open, remarkably open, I've got to say, about the issues that they're dealing with in this situation. And they have a wonderful rapport together. They bounce off of each other. I'm frankly envious because I'm just the lone guy in the bunker. I don't have anybody to bounce off of until this morning. But you guys do a great job together. It's wonderful to listen to you. It's just a delight, really. Oh, well, thank you, RFM. You know, I it is nice having a, a co-host on the on the podcast with with each other. So if one person's a little tired that night and the other person's got to carry the load, then that can happen. Yeah, me. I, it's all- I, I carry the load. <laughs> carry the load, yeah. I'm usually the one that, that, that's getting tired. <laughs> so, Katie, I know you've told this story before. Can you give us the thumbnail version of the fact that now you're in the situation where Alan has decided to depart from the plan and he's getting further and further away from uh, the church, if I can just put it that way, to put it in as brief of terms as possible. But then you came up, or both of you came up with the idea of doing a podcast about it. How did that happen? Sure. So I was really struggling with the way Alan was heading. And I asked my, the first counselor in the state presidency, I said, is there any sort of roadmap or navigation that I can get here? I said, you know, if there's someone in the stake that's been through this, you don't have to tell me now, but if you could think of someone and maybe approach them and see if they'd be willing to talk to me, I'd be really appreciative because I, I don't, I don't know anyone that's out. I don't know that, um, I don't know anyone that has navigated um, a mixed faith marriage. And he sat back and thought about it for a while and then said to me, you know, there really isn't anyone. And I actually, it made me mad. And I, I went away from that feeling like one of two things is happening. Either one, people can't be transparent with leaders because they're afraid of what they'll be told or they're afraid of the actions that will be taken against them. Or two, people are just like silently falling, falling away uh, because they don't have the support. There's nothing out there. And so, or three, the stake presidents in a mixed faith marriage. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. No, it was one or two. it was no, one or two. It was one or two, and so it it was it was that type of anger that motivated me, motivated me to say to Alan, "Hey, I think that there might be something here. Would you would you like to do a podcast?" And Alan has done podcasts in the past, um, so I knew he knew the know how to do it. And so we, I mean, that's kind of the course that we got set on is um, that's how we got started. You know, that reminds me of a story, Katie, and I don't want to take up the whole time, but I want to get your thoughts on it and yours too, Alan. Okay. This is about five years or so ago up in my stake. And we had a new stake presidency that was called, and of course, new counselors. And I remember they were sort of doing the tour and introducing themselves to the different wards. And one of the counselors wives got up and addressed the congregation and was remarkably open, I thought, in what she was saying. She was talking about the fact that she'd been looking at church history and there were some questions that she had and there were some members of her family, her immediate family, brothers or sisters, I suppose, who were really struggling with issues that were raised from their study of church history. But she wanted just, you know, to continue on and and go forward in faith. But the fact was she brought it up in a public setting, which I thought was remarkable for the wife of a stake presidency counselor. And then I remember about a week later seeing the same lady and approaching her in the hallway. I didn't really know her very well, but I approached her in the hallway and I said, hey, I thought that was really 
really uh, interesting and brave of you to talk about those issues that you're having and members of your family are having with church history. And a week later, she says, oh, no, 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 I, I didn't mean any of that. And that's not really what's going on. Everything's fine. No troubles with church history with me or my family. Thank you very much. And then she walked on. Huh. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I, I would, two things come to mind. And Katie, you can jump in too if, if what you were thinking during that story. But one is, okay, uh, afterwards, was she told not to share those things? Was that one, that's one way of maybe she was saying, man, you overshared, you need to, to step back. If someone asks about this, you need to pull that back a little bit. And the other is everything in her life is perfect. And she just created a story to have an impact because she knows it's an issue. Probably number one. I, what, do you, what do you think, Katie? Yeah. So I think that she probably faced some backlash from her husband or from other leaders or even her own peers. I've, I've, I have felt very judged and um, it's, it's difficult. <laughs> it's, it's, sometimes it's easier just to pretend like everything is fine and that your life is great and you're supportive and, you know, whatever, my, my feelings um, don't need to be out there for everyone to judge. And so I think, she, I mean, she could have faced quite a few, a, a few comments and judgment from um, other people, and maybe she didn't want to rock the boat. Right, and I will tell you, this of course is not an exercise to try and judge this particular person, but it's just that when you brought up the idea that you went to your state president and he doesn't know of anybody, and then you gave these options as to why it was that he might not know of anybody because they're all busy flying under the radar and pretending that everything is okay. That's what made me think of this story. So uh, you said, Katie, that you have felt judged. How, how has that happened? Um, I think that I definitely get the comments when Alan stopped going to church. I get the comments of, you know, you're doing such a great job. I think members don't realize. I think that they're trying to be encouraging and loving to you when in reality, it's hurtful when people say things like, oh, you, you just keep going. You just keep bringing those kids to church you're doing what you should and you're trying on your end. Like it's a pity party that they pity me because I'm the church widow and my, my kids are there alone with me. And I know that Alan is home and, you know, it's almost an, an indication of how they feel towards Alan, whether they, you know, that they clearly disagree with his choice to not come and support me and the kids mm-hmm. and I'm there alone. Has anybody actually mentioned Alan to you by name in any of those comments? Well, a number of times before people, people didn't know what was going on. It was kind of a slow burn. And so when Alan stopped coming, they would say, where's Alan? And at first I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to out him because I didn't feel like it was my story to tell. And so I would say things like, oh, he's, he's on a business trip or cause he was, but then after a time when I got to a place of accepting where I was and I felt comfortable enough, I would say, oh, he's home. He's not coming to church anymore. And it was shock for them. And then they'd say, really, are you okay? I mean, they immediately want to know how I'm doing but not, not necessarily how he's doing and why he stopped coming. Alan, have any, excuse me, has anybody from the ward reached out to you personally since you stopped going to church to ask you directly what it is that's going on? 
Um, a couple, uh, literally two. Uh, one of which was a former state president, mission president who wanted to fix me, which I'm fine with. Like we went to lunch and I love those conversations. And I kind of realized that that it's pretty rare for someone to actually say, hey, let's talk about all of this stuff. So even if I sense that somebody is going to try to convince me I'm wrong, like those conversations don't give me stress and I think they're fun. But I did have one neighbor who, uh, when I finally posted on Facebook, my kind of coming out, I'm done with the church. This is in December of 2018, about almost a year after we started the podcast. So it's funny. I wasn't publicly out, even though we were doing a podcast. Uh, we, uh, he, he came over within an hour of that post, knocked on the door and really honestly with tears in his eyes, just said, I had no idea. I am so sorry from, you know, for what you've been through. And it was, I, I knew that he didn't agree with me, but he was just so compassionate. And we sat down on my couch and we talked for about an hour about just everything. And I, you know, he trusted me, uh, to be able to tell my story without, threatening or harming things that that he either holds sacred or or thinks very highly of and so i returned the favor and i didn't i didn't go there with him uh it was it was quite nice of him to to stop by but other than that you know i've had conversations with leaders but but uh just the lay membership those those really are the only two that i can think of were, were there two there i only heard one did i miss something yeah so there was a former mission president stake president that asked me to go to lunch. And that's one person? Yes. Okay. And then there was another when I outed myself that came and knocked on my door and started chatting with me. How did that go? It was great. I mean, I just, just you know, I just told that story. So um, yeah, we just sat on the couch and we talked about uh, what I had been through. I gave him the timeline. He was very, very compassionate, very sincere, Felt felt really bad that he had no idea I'd been going through this because he had seen over the previous year and a half that I had been at, at church. Um, and every so often I'm making these, these comments that are a little bit different. Uh, his, his spouse, actually, his wife was very understanding and even supportive of the comments that I've made. One of three or four people that would text me during Sunday school when I would raise my hand and say something like maybe Nephi shouldn't have killed Laban and, maybe women aren't walking pornography and things like that. And uh, his wife really appreciated those comments. So he kind of knew that my, that my thought process was a little bit not Sunday school, you know, primary answers. And he just felt bad that he didn't put two and two together. I, before we go further with this, I want to talk about these uh, workshops that you and oh. Katie have been doing. You just finished your first session of workshops, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. We did. Um, you know, Katie and I have been doing this podcast for two and a half years now. And it's not quite to the RFM level of, of time or quantity of episodes, but we're doing what we can to keep up. And we, we got to the point where we wanted to figure out a way that we could help more. We started doing these uh, in-person meetups uh, across the country, really. We've been to a number of different places. We started here in Utah, then we started branching out outside of Utah. And we realized this is not scalable. <laughs> we love doing it. We love meeting with people, but we just can't do this. So we we came up, actually, Katie came up with, she, I tell you, all the good ideas are hers. 
she came up with an idea of doing an online course and partnering with a, a professional marriage and family therapist to do a six-week course for mixed-faith couples, something that would be kind of the next stepping stone, not as intimidating or as expensive as doing um, one-on-one therapy or I guess two-on-one therapy, but but with a professional therapist in a group setting to be able to to learn how to navigate through mixed-faith marriage. So Katie, you want to tell them who we, who we partnered with and yeah. how that, that first course went? We partnered with Natasha Helfer-Parker and the first course went really, really well. Uh, one of the greatest things that we actually were unexpected was that so many people commented on how, how great it was to work in a group because I got to know the other couples and so many of the questions as well as um, things other people have done were very helpful. And so, you know, we, we thought, well, we'll, you know, put 20, 24 couples together and do this. And it ended up being a super positive experience. So we've decided to do it again. Great. Yeah. Katie, before you get to again, what was the highlight? <laughs> no names, of course, of anybody, but what was the highlight of this first set of workshops? I think um, for sure some of the comments, one, one of my favorite comments was that they, feel like, they felt like what they could have accomplished in six months, they accomplished in six weeks. Um, you know, one of, one of the big things is I, I really wished and hoped that there had been something like this for me when we were going through like really the thick of it. And to be honest, Alan and I did the exercises um, and homework with all the other couples and it was really positive. It was a really good thing for us to do as well to reevaluate um, where our relationship was and negotiate things that are still hard for us. And so I really enjoyed going through the course myself, experiencing it um, along with the other couples. And then just the comments of how, you know, from couples who've been doing this for a year to couples who had been doing it for six plus years, um, that, that all of it was really helpful. And I, by, by nature, I'm, I really enjoy helping people. So I felt very um, fulfilled by this project. That's so great. I'll tell you that one of the things I really appreciate about both of you is that compared to me, I'm pretty removed. I'm pretty much bunker mentality, so to speak. And I'm anonymous, frankly. But you both are out there and you are ministering, if I can use that expression, you're ministering to other people who are in the same position as you. And even before this workshop, you'd be going out, you'd be having dinner with people, couples who are in the same sort of position and actually trying to work one-on-one or two-on-two with them and help them out through their issues. I mean, it's so important. It's so important to understand that you are not the only one going through this. You know, a faith crisis is hard enough, but when you're going through it and your spouse isn't, both spouses feel like they are on an island. So the simple act of sitting down with a couple and eating a bad hamburger makes a huge difference. It, it really does because it normalizes it. It's okay. If other people are going through this, so can we. So the course just multiplies that literally by 20 to 25 couples because you get to see a wide variety of ages and backgrounds going through the same exact thing and sharing experiences of how they're being able to do it. 
Yeah. And also on some level, all of us are looking for a community. And when you no longer fit into the community that you, you, you're in, you feel like you need something else out there. And so I'm really proud of the fact that we've created a community of people who accept and love one another and who are willing to put themselves out there in, in order to, to make friendships. And Alan and I have found that um, not that we don't love our old friends, but you you know, different friends serve different purposes at different times. And right now for us, this community is really serving us well as, um, as well so that we have something that we can relate to and um, that fits, fits us better in this time of our life. Well, I hear that the first set of workshops was hugely successful, so much so that where we broke off, you have scheduled a new series of workshops and it's scheduled to start in July, correct? Yeah, that's right. So we opened up our pre-registration yesterday. Uh, it, we expected, the reason why we turned around and did it so quickly is because we had to turn away so many couples from the first one. So yeah, if, if anyone listening is in that situation or knows someone that is, you can refer them to Eventbrite, which is where we are doing our signups. And you can just search for what can you search for? Workshop on a tightrope. We're really using that tightrope theme uh, in all of our branding. So workshop on a tightrope is what you can search and you'll see a uh, pre-registration event that you can register for. Who came up with marriage on a tightrope? I did. Katie did. Why? Why did you choose that title, Katie? Oh, we were really into The Greatest Showman. and That Hugh Jackman movie. That's right. And um, I was listening to the the whole CD of it or, you know, anyway, the album. And one of the songs is talks about how I'm walking a tight rope with you. And I don't know if I'm going to fall, but I'm trusting you that you're going to catch me. And I said to Alan, this is exactly how I feel our, like our marriage is, is I'm, I'm walking a tight rope. I'm trying to, to just do my best and it's really hard. And so that's how we came up with marriage on a tightrope. Well, it's great. Your, your podcast is wonderful. I have not participated in your workshops, but I understand they're great too. Some of the people who participated in the first set have communicated with me. They say it's great. And I encourage any of my listeners who might be interested, might be in the same kind of situation with a mixed faith marriage, go to Eventbrite, sign up. By the way, how much is this going to set people back? So the course itself is um, the cost is four sixty nine. If you sign up, four dollars and sixty nine cents. Four dollars and four hundred and sixty nine dollars, <laughs> and that's if you sign up by June eleventh, and then it goes up thirty bucks after that. Um, what if right? they type it Radio Free Mormon? Four, into oh, it's four sixty seven. Excuse yeah. me, four hundred sixty seven dollars. But I mean, you're getting. Um, a licensed therapist three hours a week for six weeks. I personally think it like it, it's a it's just a deal and a set of steak knives for those that <laughs> pre-register. Yes, you don't have to sell me on that. By the way, I heard that joke yesterday, Alan. Good job. Uh, <laughs> did you hear what I said? How much does it cost if they type Radio Free Mormon into the code box? <laughs> it, uh, it goes up to four <laughs> four thousand sixty seven dollars. Oh my gosh, Alan. Alan, I want to ask you something, and it might have to do with your state, uh, your mission president from Barcelona. Uh, yeah. But have people thought that you were actively trying to lead people away from the church? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Uh, I think directly 
we've been called out just the once. Um, okay, I, I just the s- once. Can you tell my audience about just the once? Is that the former mission president? Yes. Is this the and same guy who came over to your house and was really compassionate? No. No. No, not at all. Oh, wait a second. You got more than one mission president? We did. So, and, and the mission president I referred to that's in our ward was not our mission president. He's just in our ward and was a former mission president. Oh, that's where I got confused. Okay, because your actual mission president in Barcelona was not quite so solicitous, right? Correct. Tell me about it. Correct. Yeah. So that story was a fun one. Uh, last April, uh, just before general conference, you know, he's he is uh, also in the in the first quorum of the seventy, and so. And what um, does his last name rhyme with? Lowen. It rhymes with Lowen. <laughs> it does rhyme with Lowen. Or is it uh, Lowen? Cohen. Doen. Cohen. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. It's Bowen. So uh, we, we <laughs> he invited us to, uh, and not just us, but everybody, to do a little mission reunion. And so he was in town for for a general conference, and um, I told Katie we should go. And did you think I was crazy? Yeah, I, I wondered why he wanted to go. <laughs> I mean, Alan and I both know a lot of people, so I think part of it is just seeing people that we love and we know. Well, that's that's the primary reason, is I wanted to see a bunch of people that I love and I maybe not share the same beliefs with, but that's okay. So we, we went, and uh, it. how was the first part of the meeting, Katie? Um, it was fine. Yeah? Yeah. So we sat down in the chapel and, and he's a pretty formal dude. And he, he kind of walked through uh, a short service with hymns and a, and a talk and things like that. And then afterwards, I wanted to ask him uh, a question. I wanted to ask if, if, uh, he, if he and the brethren wanted people like me in the pews. At this point, I was still, I was, the belief was gone, but I was in this mixed faith marriage. I still love my neighbors. I wanted to kind of be in the community somehow, but I can't be quiet. I, cause that's just, I can't. And I went up to, to speak with him and, and, uh, before I could get the question out, I didn't even know he knew I, I had left the church. So I asked him, I'm not sure if you know this, but have you, do you know that I've left? And, and he said, Oh, I do. I've listened to your podcast. Mm. And I went, Oh, fascinating. That's cool. So I, I asked him, well, well, what do you, what do you think? And I was less than enthusiastic about his response. Um, about his response. This is elder Shane M. Bowen sustained as a general authority 70 of the LDS church, April 1st, 2006, right? Yes, that's correct. I just and so, and we were there 2002, Katie left in 2003. I left in 2004. The mission. Correct. Got it. So what did he say? Well, um, he and, and we can talk about how we now understand his response and why we feel like he he gave the response that he did. But he did say that he felt it was inappropriate. The podcast was inappropriate, and that we were actively trying to lead people um, out of the church. In which, and Katie was not next to me when I when I went up and, and spoke with him. She was speaking with some friends, so I. I try to defend us and say like, no, 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 no. People find themselves in this situation and we are trying to make sure that they don't end their marriage because of it. And he, and he went into just talk to me about a few other things, um, theologically and, and it was a pretty short conversation, but 
yeah, we went and had some refreshments in the gym. Alan, are you going to hold out on me? What did he say theologically? Oh, I mean, he asked me if I believe there was an afterlife. And I said, I don't know. And he said, does that concern you? And I said, not really. I mean, if I take care of today, tomorrow will take care of itself. Oh, don't be quoting Jesus, man. Not to your mission president. <laughs> I didn't even realize. That's how bad of a... <laughs> what? You didn't realize scholar. that from the Sermon on the Mount? Oh, oh, of course. Of course I did. Okay. <laughs> take no thought for the morrow. You know, the whole nine yards. Right. Okay. Right. I mean, that's just kind of how I live my life now is I'm going to, if I can make good decisions today, then tomorrow will take care of itself. Okay. So he says, do you believe in an afterlife? And you say, nah, uh, I'm not sure. And he says, doesn't that bother you? And how does that go? Um, he, he didn't really say much beyond, beyond that. Um, you know, he bore testimony, which you would expect. He, he said, you know, I, it's true. I want you to know that it's true and you need to repent. And, and that's fine. Like I said, with the mission presidents in our ward, I, I, I see where he's coming from. And so it's not a surprise or a shock when he says, when he bears that kind of testimony or even explicitly tells me I'm wrong, that that's, I would expect, I mean, he thinks I'm wrong. Of course he's going to be bold and say something like that. So um, the thing that was hard for me was, the very misunderstanding of, of what we're trying to accomplish with our podcast. And we are absolutely not, we're not painting this, this picture that you should leave. It's, it's the opposite. We're very careful in our podcast to be safe for the most orthodox of, of believers and the most apostate of apostates. Well, you know, it's interesting to me that he had stumbled upon your podcast to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was quite a coincidence, wasn't it? It's a coincidence. I'm going to get to you here in a second, Katie. I just got a comment that I understand about the testimony. I understand about the call to repentance, but it strikes me as a little bit odd that you need to repent of not being sure that you believe something. Yeah. That's an interesting, interesting way of framing it, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a hard to thing be, to do. Go ahead. To be, to be honest, when the whole entire um, his whole speech during, during that night was calling people to repentance. It was extremely uncomfortable and I did not know what he was getting at. He talked about turning to the faith and, and there were a lot of things that were said that Alan, um, didn't like because our kids were sitting right there. Things like, um, you know, you need to do this for your children and, you know, um, that the children insinuating the children would be upset if a parent left the church. There were all sorts of things that he said that it was very uncomfortable. I mean, he basically told anyone who was single in the room that they needed to repent it and find someone to get married to. And right behind me was um, a very good friend who also served her mission with me, uh, who was not LDS. And she, she spent her time crying. Or she is LDS. She's, I mean, she's not, LDS, she's not married. She's not married to an LDS person. Anyway, so she spent most of the time crying. And afterwards she said, I just don't belong here. And I felt the same way. And, and then talking to other people that were there, they're like, man, that was really harsh. That was really heavy, what he said. And I mean, we none of us really understood. And then 
the, when he, when he talked to Alan, um, and then afterwards, Alan didn't tell me until we got into the car. Tell and me about I, that, would you? Yes. Yeah. So Alan, um, I said, so I saw you talking to President Bowen and, um, tell me how that went. And he was super hesitant to tell me. And then after he told me, I spent the rest of the night crying. Basically, I was really, really upset. Um, I am a total people pleaser. And so I felt like I had let him down in some way. And then after a number of hours of talking it through with um, a good friend of mine, she's, she said, you know, Katie, <laughs> you need to realize that he's wrong. You know, I, I know that you, you're worried that you've disappointed him, but he's wrong in what he's saying. So you need to let go of that. And then I went through kind of a mini stages of grief. I was mad. I was mad that he felt that way. I didn't understand why he would be so harsh towards us. I was mad that he had all these, you know, people in the room and rather than express love and empathy for the people that served with him, he decided to call us out. And, and I, I just felt like it was totally inappropriate and I was really upset by it. Have either of you made any attempt to contact him after that? <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, uh, yes. But I mean, so uh, just two days later after this talk, uh, after this mission reunion rather, was President Nelson's quote, sad heaven talk. So his, if you recall, that, that talk was particularly rough for mixed faith marriages. It was all about if you get to the celestial kingdom and you're going to look around and say like, where's my family? And it was, it was a very fear-based versus love-based approach. And when I heard that talk, uh, that was very difficult for Katie as well. And I was very upset that she was very upset <laughs> about something that really could have, the same thing could have been said in a much more loving way. I, I sent an email to the, our mission president and, and just said, you guys need to stop this. And that's basically the gist of, of what my email was, understanding that I'm not going to get a response. He's not going to care. I, I shouldn't say he's not going to care because I, I can't say that. But I didn't expect a response. So I didn't you know, furiously update my inbox to see if he had written back, which he didn't. So that's, that's the only outreach that we've had since then. Really, you sent your mission president an email telling him how you felt about what he had said to you and also what President Nelson had said in, in conference, and he never responded? Yeah, he didn't. And I wouldn't, ex I mean, he's busy. He's, I, I didn't expect him to. I mean, you typically don't want to engage, especially in written form in these types of conversations, because you're a general authority. And if you respond, then you've got a written record of your thoughts and your opinion. And I don't think that that's desirable. So it's, well, you know, it could be. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I'd be open if, if you're listening, I would be surprised if you are my friend, but I'd be happy to sit down with you and chat because it's, you know, we, we try to be this brand of middle ground, right? That's how mixed faith marriage works is, I recognize, and I'm trying not to get off topic, but I recognize Katie holds value in her participation with the church. So part of what I have to do is, is see the good that she sees and recognize that this can be a positive in her life and in turn in my life. And so it's, it's, 
that's how I try to act towards everybody in the church, all the way up to the highest that I've spoken with, right? Which is my mission president, general authority friend. So it's, uh, you know, my, my email to him is, is coming from a place of you're, you're pushing people away. You're not making the tent bigger. You're making it smaller. And I think that's a mistake. And now what do I know? I'm just the, the guy that has left, but, but this is uh, this, careful. This, this, this direction is not making it easy for a lot of people. Mm. Katie, did you have anything you wanted to add to what Alan just said? I don't think so. I think he covered it. Okay. I, his wife, his wife is very, um, she's just a really sweet person. Wonderful. And she sent me a message and it wasn't, I actually don't know when she sent this because I had deactivated my Facebook account for a number of a year plus. And I, I got um, a message from her and it just said, I had this really, and this is when nobody knew what was going on. She sent it to me, um, during a time where we hadn't even started the podcast. And she said, you know, I had this dream. I've been thinking a lot about you. And I had this dream that in the dream that you were, you were really, really sad and you were crying and crying and I, and I was trying to console you and I couldn't, and I didn't know what to do. And I just want to tell you, I love you. And I'm, I don't know if there's anything going on, but I love you and I'm here for you. And that was really when Alan and I were in the thick of it. And she sent that and I didn't receive it till like a year later. And, um, I, I have, I do have a special place in my heart for both of them. I mean, I can, I can disagree with her husband and still really love her and, um, her thoughtfulness. So, you know, it's just a matter at this point of difference of opinion. Yeah. If they reached out today and said, Hey, we'd love to go to, uh, we'd love to go to lunch with you and not talk about anything religion. We would be in in a heartbeat. I would, I would sit down and we we could talk about baseball insurance or whatever they would want to talk about. Can I flip this to you now, Katie? I wanted to ask you a specific question and it has to do with the fact that I have been monitoring your podcast as part of my membership in the strengthening church members committee. <laughs> I knew it. Elder Dykes has been giving me that assignment on a regular basis. That's why I'm up to speed on everything that you're talking about, <laughs> including your little girl who's coming up to be baptized shortly. Mm -hmm. But no, I've listened to you and there was at least one point during prior podcasts, Katie, where you have said that you are now more nuanced in your views mm -hmm. about the church through this experience with Alan and the marriage and the podcast and everything. Could you tell me what you mean exactly by that? Oh gosh, that's hard to describe. Um, I think in general, nuanced means that you can recognize some of the messy things that, that have to do with the church. I definitely recognize um, some of the harder things that I've either learned on my own or that Alan has pointed me to, that um, it's not what I thought it would be. I, it's, I used to see it very glimmer and shimmering and nothing's wrong. And now I see that it's messy and there's a lot of gray. And so I take the stance of, I understand that there are issues in the church. I understand the problems that there that are, that exist. I also still find value in um, going and having that community. And so 
um, where I'm nuanced is I can hold space for both the believer and the non-believer and anyone in between because I have um, I just have a lot of sympathy for everyone because I I can understand it. Yeah. What are what are the top two messy things in your opinion? <laughs> for me, the the top messy thing is polygamy. And um, I don't know if we want to really get into that, but um, I have I'm, I have very strong feelings and strong ties to polygamy, and so that's why it's so difficult. Um, wait, wait a second, wait a second. Um, are you revealing something about you and Alan here for the first time on this show? <laughs> what do you mean? You have strong ties with polygamy. She has two husbands, one in Chicago. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I, I have my... My grandfather was a polygamist, and my great grandfather were polygamists, and that's more recent. Who was your great grandfather? Do you remember my, his name? Yeah, Charles Zitting. Um, he's one of the six that started. Yeah, he was asked by Joseph F. Smith to go to down go south to- and continue polygamy after the 1904 in the colonies. Yeah. Yes. In yeah. Mexico. You can look no, up Charles. Not in Mexico. Not, in Mexico, not right, that in far southern south. Utah. No. In southern Utah. Yeah. So you can look up. Um, you can look up Charles Zitting. He's he's kind of a FLDS superstar. Yeah. Was that before or after? That would have been after the first manifesto in 1890, correct? That was after the second manifesto. Was it after the second? That's where I was getting to. Is it after the second manifesto in 1904? Mm-hmm. That's correct. So I mean, that's very close because that's that's Katie's uh, grandmother's dad mm-hmm. who left while Katie's great grandmother was pregnant with Katie's grandmother. Yeah. She, she said that she wouldn't go with him. And so, um, they got divorced and when she was pregnant with my grandma and then my grandmother, um, she got remarried and my grandmother was actually, um, another man raised her and he was very good to them. And so my grandma just completely rejects that, um, he's even a part of her life because he wasn't, but biologically he is. And we learned all of this when I was down the rabbit hole because part of the rabbit hole for me was learning about uh, our ancestors in the family tree, right? Going on to family search and reading journals and reading this and reading that. And while doing that, I found this journal from Charles Zitting in Katie's family tree. It was pretty crazy. That is fascinating to me. And just so that everybody in the audience understands, I think most of them probably do. In 1890, Wilford Woodruff, under great pressure from the federal government, said he announced in general conference, hey, we're not going to be practicing polygamy anymore. And then they kept doing it, of course, behind the scenes. And then in 1904, when it came out that they still were doing it after they said they weren't, then there was a second manifesto where Joseph uh, F. Smith, said, no, this time we really, really mean it. We're not practicing polygamy anymore. And it was after that second manifesto that Mr. A Brother Zitting, Charles Zitting, then was sent by Joseph F. Smith down to Southern Utah to continue to practice polygamy? Correct. Wow. And, you know, it's just, it's kind of mind-blowing to me, only because D. Michael Quinn, as you probably know, back in the 1980s, he had written a number of things, but the thing he got excommunicated over really primarily was a paper that he wrote dealing with the subject of post-manifesto polygamy. And that's just polygamy that occurred after 1890. This is after the second manifesto. I mean, we, we hear about the manifesto in church, right? In the church, we never hear about the second manifesto, or at least I never did. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he got excommunicated for that, for writing about it, even though apparently it's in your very family tree 
that not only was there post-manifesto polygamy, but there was post-second manifesto polygamy. Yeah. Yep. So that's, I mean, I felt <laughs> like um, I listened to your polygamy and I... That's the Lindsay Hansen Park podcast. Yes, that's Lindsay Hansen Park. And anyway, I just, I have, I just have a lot of issues with it. So, um, and they're, <laughs> since they're so ingrained in like the family, my, my family will not talk about it. Um, it's kind of, he's, he's kind of a scourge on the family. People just don't even want to recognize or that it happens. But um, anyway, so I would say polygamy, that's the first thing, um, you know, LGBTQ, all of that's wrapped into that, um, you know. So I think my my problems with the church are a lot of social issues. Can I ask you a question, Katie? Sure. Um, this is a question about when it was that you found out that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. Because, you know, there's this uh, idea in the church that everybody sort of knows about Joseph Smith practicing polygamy. But then there's this other faction of members of the church who are basically your your average members of the church, they go every week, they attend all their lessons, they do whatever reading it is that they're supposed to do in the correlated church sources. And then they grow up, and then all of a sudden, it's a surprise to them to find out that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. It was sort of presented to them, or they had the understanding that it started started with uh, Brigham Young. Mm-hmm. With, your, with your background, did you always understand that Joseph Smith had practiced polygamy? I did not understand that. Um, I... I, I I had heard like rumors, but I, I didn't really know. And it wasn't until I read Rough Stone Rolling, Alan suggested that book when um, he was going through his faith crisis. That's kind of when I got into it. I got into it. And then another friend suggested to me um, that I should listen to your polygamy because we were on this subject. And, you know, anything that comes from Alan is usually very like I feel like guarded against what he tells me to listen to or read, and so he apparently had mentioned this to me before. And I anyway, I never really knew. But when a friend suggested it, that's your polygamy. Um, that was just a couple of years ago. That's when I really dove into it and started to understand um, just the aspect, all aspects, Some of those details, facets yeah. of that. Yeah. That is a wonderful podcast, by the way. Uh, Lindsay Hansen uh, Park, right? I'm so sorry, Lindsay. Lindsay's uh, podcast, A Year in Polygamy. I saw her at Sunstone last summer. And I, I think I mentioned to her something about she should rename it A Century in Polygamy or something like that. Maybe a decade <laughs> in polygamy because her podcast started off with the idea she'd go for a year talking about polygamy. And then she started getting deeper and deeper and going on and on. And there was just more and more to talk about and to discover in this incredible subject. Um, let me ask this. Let's, let's go ahead and leave polygamy to the side. I think it's probably understandable to everybody why it is that a person would have difficulty with polygamy. Um, the LGBTQ thing, I think that probably everybody can understand the difficulty there. Sure. But uh, let me go back to you now. Well, let, no, let me stay with you, Katie. This whole sad heaven talk. I am, you talk about being nuanced. Here's what I want to ask you. Um, obviously, in Mormonism, it is very, very important to be married forever. And that's the foundation for eternal life and exaltation in the celestial kingdom, right? Yes? 
Yes. Yes, okay. we agree. Okay. <laughs> We're nodding our heads. Okay, good. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, and and Alan, if you want to throw in too, but mainly to Katie. Uh, obviously, Alan leaving the church, he's kind of breaking that tie, that eternal tie that you two made in the temple. Has that caused you concern? And if so, could you share that with us and how, if you've resolved it to any degree, how you've managed to do that? Sure. I, I'll, I'll say this, that, um, you know, after our families and friends found out about where we were, we got a, a letter from a concerned family member saying that, you know, now that I wasn't married to someone who could, you know, take me to the celestial kingdom. Maybe I, they insinuated, maybe I should do the hard thing like the pioneers did and leave my spouse behind and, and, um, you know, forge my, my way to the social kingdom with someone else or. You're talking about getting divorced, not killing him, right? Correct. (laughs) Was it suggesting blood atonement on Alan? (laughs) (laughs) She could take me out if she wanted. (laughs) Leave him on the prairie. (laughs) Right. So yeah, this is divorce. And I was very, very upset from the email as well-meaning and loving as it was. I was very upset. So I went to my stick president and I said to him, like, here's the email. I am really heartbroken and sad over this. And what, what do you think? And he's super, he just was so wise. He said, Katie, we know about a pinky full worth of what's going to happen to us in the afterlife. And he said, does your husband um, abuse you? And I said, no. And she, he said, does your husband um, support you? Does he love you? Does he take care of you and the kids? And I said, yes. And he said, I would never, ever suggest that someone uh, get divorced from their spouse because of this. This is not something that you need to get divorced over. He's a good man. I've been meeting with him for you know a year and he's doing his best and you're doing your best. And I, I just, I totally disagree with everything in this, in this email. He said, um, you know, you're just, I think that it'll just all work itself out. And I, I kind of knew that deep down, but it was really, really nice to hear someone echo that feeling. And especially someone I respected in a leadership position because I really respected him and he has helped us quite a bit over the past year. And um, so after hearing that, I just stopped worrying about it. I just think like, you know, if Alan's not in the celestial kingdom, so to speak, I don't want to be there either. It's not my celestial kingdom without my family. So if I, I'm not going to feel comfortable there and if that's the way God works. And I just don't think that's the way he works. I, I feel like um, we just don't give ourselves or give him enough credit for how merciful or how compassionate he is. And so, I, like he said, I just, don't, I just don't believe that. Can I ask you directly, do you think that President Nelson was wrong then in what he said in his sad heaven talk? Hmm. I felt like, I feel like he 100% believes in what, in what he says. So it's not for me to say if he was wrong. Can I disagree? Yes. I, can I, I felt, I felt like it was a bit manipulative. I feel like it was playing on an emotion, which I, you know, again, a manipulative and that was hard for me, but if I take a, a step back, I can see that he 100% percent 
believes that. So I can't fault him for that. All I can do is disagree with what he says. Right. So I've written it down. You think that President Nelson was wrong, manipulative, and playing <laughs> on your emotions. Do I have Thanks. that right, Katie? Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. No, what's not what you're saying? Play the tape. Play it back. I, I, <laughs> she didn't use the word wrong. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she said, you, well, you disagreed with him. Okay. I just disagree. Yeah, disagree is different. No, I said no. I said you think he was wrong. See, that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying are you the arbiter of what is true in the universe and you know he was wrong. Just so you disagree. That's okay. Not trying to play gotcha, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! But now, can I go to um uh? Because I know we've got time that's limited. When do you guys have to leave? Half an hour? We, yeah, we've got third. You know, forty-five minutes. Oh, that's not we're too so, bad. Yeah, but we're still, fine. We're fine. Um, Alan, 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 I want to ask you a question. Have sure. you had any interesting uh, discussions or comments from people at work? <laughs> so here's the fun part is uh, RFM, I'm answering your question very indirectly. RFM and I have been phone pals for a couple of years. So you're coming into this interview extremely prepared with a lot of information over the last couple of years with our phone calls that we've had, which is great. So it's, it's funny you ask because there have been a couple of interesting things that have happened at work. Uh, I've been really lucky actually, because, uh, you know, one thing that I did at work when I was going through my faith crisis was, I started looking for others that were in the same situation because I was feeling so solo, so alone. This is before we started our podcast. And so I would go down into the break room in the morning to grab my snack or grab my, grab my water or whatever I was drinking at the moment. And I would look for people filling up uh, a coffee cup in the coffee machine. I work in Utah. I mean, we're in Salt Lake County, so not everybody's LDS, but neither are they in Utah County. But I, I would see if somebody was filling up a, a coffee cup, I would walk over to him and say, hey, what's your deal with the LDS church? <laughs> and 95% of the time, the answer was I've left within the last five years. And so a few times it was like, oh, I've, I've never been LDS. I just live here and, and that's fine. And so that's how I kind of started to grow a little network of people at work that, that had left. Well, Fast forward about a year and a half, and now we're in, I think it was, in, no, yeah, it was last summer. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting at my desk. I'm now openly out, and I've been posting on Facebook about uh, a few things uh, that, that I f disagree with and whatnot. And uh, one of our board members came up to me, and um, in front of about 10, 12 employees, told me that he usually likes my Facebook posts because they, they strike some good conversation, but that the one that I had posted yesterday on morality, uh, he was not a fan of. Okay. Let give us some background. What was this, the, the thrust of this morality post you did? Oh, it was just, it was uh, often when you just kind of step outside of, of the church, you, you take your own authority back and a lot of, a lot of times you define your morality by what leaders tell you it should be. And so my post was all about like, it's, it's awesome for me to be able to think and, and uh, accept certain things as moral and define other things as not moral for, for my own behavior and, and language, etc. And so for me, it was like, it, I just really like being able to, to define my own morality, it makes me feel like I'm captaining my own ship. And that's great. 
And there was some, you know, some, uh, some believers in this, this person as well engaged in that Facebook post and said, you know, this leads to anarchy. And if you were at a stoplight, uh, if you were at a red light and I had a green going across the intersection, I would not want someone that's defining their own morality to be in the, in this <laughs> going on at the red light. Like I wouldn't know if you were going to drive through it or not. And in the Facebook post, my response to him was, well, I wouldn't want you someone that could potentially receive a revelation or some voice telling them to drive through the red light. Like, I'm not going to do that regardless of who tells me to, because this is my authority and I know it's wrong to drive through that red light. There's a possibility that God tells you to drive through. I'm not going to go through. Anyway, that was the back and forth we had. And then the next day at work, uh, he kind of walked in and spent five to seven minutes kind of berating my beliefs and okay, hang on a telling second. me yes. I was wrong. This is a senior person in your company. Uh, no longer. He had retired a few years prior, but we were in the midst of being acquired. And so he, he was on the board at the time. And so he came in and, and, um, were you going to tell the audience this guy's name? Uh, probably not. Probably not. I'll I'll tell them later after you go off the air. (laughs) Yeah. You know, here, and here's why, I mean, I'm not, I'm not afraid of, of anything. I don't, they, and the church and their authorities hold no power over me. We've, we've talked just extensively about uh, president Bowen and, and that's fine. I, you know, I, I really love this man. In fact, after he, he pulled me aside, um, after five minutes or so, he pulled me into a conference room and continued to try to convince me we're wrong. And I said, let's go to lunch. And so we went to lunch for three okay, hours. Back up, back up, back up. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I want to know this guy whose name we're yeah. not going to talk about, okay, or his dad, but he was in a room. There's 12 other people, coworkers of yours, and he spends five minutes berating you in front of the coworkers, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe berates a bit of a, a harsh word, but he was telling me I was wrong. Um, about the morality thing. Yeah. About the morality thing and about just my overall stance on the church. And I just largely sat there and because I immediately recognized he is overstepping here and everybody knows it. And so I just kind of sat there and let him, let him talk at me. And then when he was done, we went into a room and we talked, but, uh, my coworkers, many of which, most of which are still in they all apologized to me. They all said, I'm so sorry. Like that. In fact, didn't they go to HR? They went to HR. (laughs) Yeah. I got pulled in by one of our executives the next day. Um, and asking me like, what happened? Is everything okay? And I told him, I was like, I, I am fine. I told this executive, I'm totally fine. I feel bad for everybody else because it was really uncomfortable. And I'm used to conversations like this. I'm okay being told I've been, I'm told I'm wrong not every day. People aren't that bold, but I get it. But everyone else sitting around me, I, I just felt bad for him. Mm. You keep using the word bold. I would use a different adjective. <laughs> yeah. That's you, the four, that's the four letter word I'm going to stick with. Right now. <laughs> okay. But you, you went into a room then after he berates you, which you say may be strong, but he calls you out in a business setting in front of 12 of your coworkers, and then you take him into a room or he calls you into a room privately? 
Uh, to be honest, I don't remember who suggested it, but we, okay. we, we went into the room and th- we drew on the whiteboard in there actually, and it stayed in there for a few weeks, what we had drawn on the whiteboard. Was it like the little Planet Salvation bubbles? No, not quite. What was he, it? He drew, uh, he drew on the board a line that said, um, like, perception. And then he drew another line above it that said actuality. And he, he was saying, don't let your perception of what church, your understanding of what church history was, and the gap between that and what actual church history was, don't let that lead you astray from, from the truth. Like, yes, he, I mean, he admitted he was a mission president in, you know, recent days. And so he, he gets that now there's a lot more information available about church history. So I'm sure he learned things about church history that he didn't know in the last 10 years. And so he's, he's saying, don't let the gap between actual, what actually happened, or at least the historical record and what you thought the historical record was, don't let that convince you it's not true. And I said, and my response was to draw two other lines. <laughs> and I said, that is not what has happened. Yes, it was difficult. And yes, there was a sense of betrayal. But for me, the gap was not, there was a different gap that, that caused me to conclude the church was not what it claimed to be. The gap was what the historical record says and the other line being what I had told, what I had felt the spirit tell me that gap was irreconcilable to me. It was, th- I had been told by God that these things were true. And now the church was telling me they weren't. So obviously I had concluded wrong. I had felt the spirit tell me things that whoops, I, I misinterpreted what I had thought the spirit had told me. So what else had I misinterpreted? And when you open that door, it, it, all crumbles relatively quickly. What was his response to that? He, I mean, to his credit, he nodded and said, okay, that's, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, It's set up in a way, and I've used that analogy, that, that comparison a couple of times before, because you asked them like, what does that mean about the spiritual impression? And a number of people, including leaders, local leaders have said, well, you misinterpreted those, those spiritual promptings. And my response is, yeah, that's the problem. That's the problem. So that's when we set up the lunch. He's like, oh, I'd love to get more into this. And we set up a lunch. Okay. Now I'm going to want to go to that lunch here in just a second, but I don't want to leave Katie out of this. Katie, here's the problem. Okay. The problem is you've got so much to say, but you haven't been phone pals with me for the last year. So I don't know all <laughs> this stuff to lead you into as carefully as I'm leading Alan into these stories. I did want to ask you though about uh, this recent story that Alan had told regarding your son and getting the priesthood or uh, being ordained at mm-hmm. 12. Mm-hmm. I've heard Alan talk about it because the whole issue was between him and the bishop and the state president regarding whether he could ordain your son mm-hmm. to the priesthood. And I understand that ended up uh, occurring a certain way. But what I wanted to hear, if you're okay with it, is your perspective on that whole episode. Wow. Okay. Well, that spanned um, like three episodes, so um, I'll try to condense it. I so when Hayden said that he wanted um, Alan to give him the priesthood, I was actually like really happy that Alan said that he would talk to the bishop about it because um, he loves 
our son and our son loves him. And really he didn't want to be the bad guy. And I agreed with him. I thought that that was a really smart decision. So um, after it came down that he couldn't do it, uh, it was definitely heartbreaking for both Alan and Hayden. And, you know, I, um, I, I told Hayden that he could decide on someone else to pick and he picked his, his uncle and his uncle's young. He's in his early twenties and, and I mean, they have a good relationship. So I was, I was fine with that. But, um, I, I actually had, um, called my mom to tell her that what was going on and, and she said, well, you know, wouldn't you rather have like your dad do it? Can't you just tell him to have grandpa do it? And I feel like we had been set through such a traumatic thing um, with the time and effort we put into trying to see if Alan could do it, that I just didn't feel like it was fair that um, Hayden pick anyone or feel pressured into picking someone else. And I, I mean, I thought, well, then if he thinks that his uncle's the next best thing, that's what I want. And my dad was really gracious. I called him and explained it to him and he was really awesome about it. And, and so, um, the day came and, uh, it was awkward. The whole day was awkward. I knew all Alan felt awkward about it. I know that, you know, my parents didn't want to overstep, I, I just think all around, it was a really hard, hard thing. But, what, but one thing that I really regret is, you know, as much as we communicated to Hayden about it, what we didn't communicate was that Alan wasn't going to be in the circle. And so um, Hayden, that was an oversight on our part. And so Hayden was really upset when Alan didn't join the circle to give him the priesthood. And to be fair, they did tell Alan he could stand in the circle. but he didn't. And, um, and Hayden just kept motioning Alan to come and stand with him in it. And it was so, it was sad. It really like broke my heart. I knew that Alan was really like feeling damaged by it and he was upset by it. And I tried to, you know, do anything I could do to help him through that. But as a mother, you don't want to, I mean, I don't like seeing, my son in that situation either. And so that was, that was pretty difficult. Um, it ended as quickly as it began and we just kind of hightailed it out of there. But, um, the very first time he, Alan was out of town. He, the very first time he wanted to, to pass the sacrament, he was actually really happy to do it. And he said that he really enjoyed it. So I think um, ultimately it was a good decision. It, the whole reason for him wanting to get the priesthood was so he could pass the sacrament and take it to the old people and um, and do the flag. Like he really wanted those responsibilities. So I think in the end it was it was good, but it definitely is heartbreaking. I have a lot of empathy for both Alan and Hayden, and so it was hard. Mm. Katie, if you had been the bishop, would you have allowed Alan to ordain your son? I don't know. I, I don't know because if, if I'm a bishop, I'm assuming that I am fully believing acting in. And if that's the case, 
I would look at Ellen and say like, well, you're not, you don't even believe it. Why do, why would you want to do it? I don't think I would have the understanding. Um, if I were the bishop today, knowing what I know, I would absolutely let him do it. What is it that you know today that would make you absolutely let him do it? I think, um, you know, letter of the law versus spirit of the law. I think I, I have a lot of compassion for dynamics between family. And, um, you know, in this case, knowing what I know, I, I just feel like I would do what I could in order to keep those relationships intact because I know how important they are, especially in a family setting and especially in a mixed faith marriage. Hmm. Alan. Hi. Why didn't you stand in the circle, man? <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't, I think in the moment it was as simple as they told me I can't do this. So I'm not, I, I can't do this. I didn't even think about in the moment. I don't even think I realized that I should have been up there. Uh, it, again, like Katie said, it was kind of an oversight. We didn't really plan it and, and communicate it well to Hayden. I thought the understanding was I'm not going to be involved so that's why I didn't get up. And yeah, he, with hands on his head, right before the prayer started, he looked at me and kind of like pointed at the ground in front of him, like, get up here. And I shrugged my shoulders like, sorry, you know, what am I going to do? I, Katie kind of mentioned it, but my whole approach was, I'm not going to be the bad guy here. I, I'm going to be the one that, that asks, tries to do what my kid wants me to do. So I had multiple conversations with, with stake president and the bishop. And I think one part uh, that I experienced that Katie didn't cause she wasn't in those meetings with me was I, I was very vocal with them of how I thought this was a mistake that th what they were doing was only going to drive him away from the church because they were, they were telling him that his dad wasn't good enough and he wasn't going to buy that. And he doesn't buy that. Okay. Katie, I know we're talking about Alan here and about whether he could ordain your son and then whether he could stand in the circle. And apparently the answer that came down from the bishop and the state president was no to the first and yes to the second, right? Right. But I don't want to overlook the fact that we're talking with you and neither of those is even an option for you. Right. Right. Had, have you reflected on that at all during the course of this? Is that yeah. important to you? Can you tell us about it? actually came up with Hayden. Didn't it, it did. I, we asked Hayden, if dad can't do it, who do you want it? Who do you want to have, have the person do it? And he said, well, mom, I want you. And I said, buddy, I can't do it. And he said, why? And they said, because women aren't allowed to do it in the priesthood. And he said, well, that's sexist. And <laughs> <laughs> we laughed in the moment too. We laughed. Cause I thought, yeah, he gets, he's 11 and he gets it. He knows. Um, so it's hard. It's, you know. <sighs> Who served in the mission with us? Oh, yeah. Um, Kate Kelly, who is the founder of Ordained Women. Oh, um, she was in your mission. I think you yeah. mentioned that, Alex. Yeah, we knew, we knew her well. She, she did. And, you know, I'll tell you, when, when that was all going on, I, I, was, I just couldn't understand. I'm like, why would you want the priesthood? I don't understand this. Um, and now, now, uh, being in the position we're in now, I, I have a, a lot of, a, again, a lot of sympathy, a lot of empathy. It's hard um, that women can just now be witnesses of their own, of their own children's baptism. Um, I'm glad that 
that's the direction it's moving in, but um, I feel like more can be done. Uh, my sister just, she was home from a mission in Tonga and she told me that they're so steeped in tradition that they don't allow the sisters to be witnesses there, even though they can be witnesses. Um, traditionally it's been men. And so that's who's allowed to do it. So even with some of her own baptisms, her and her companion couldn't be witnesses because um, it's not the tradition and that's the Bishop would not allow it. So I think there's just a, you know, very varying degrees of um, that within the church and, you know, both leader, leader wise and, um, and also member wise, people have different ideas on it. Traditions are hard to, hard to change. Yes. Katie, you said you think more could be done. Do you have any specific ideas along those lines? Um, she wants to be Bishop. <laughs> I feel like, you know, I served in the primary as a primary president for three years and, um, I felt it was, it was a travesty that there were 10 men and three women, like, but then when and the men were council and more council. And then when the, when, you know, people would, would bring up, oh, this sister or this man who are needing help, it, you know, 70% of the response was from the women. It's the women who had done a lot of the work and had visited these people or had taken dinners to them or, or whatever it might be. Um, it was, it was the women who did it. And I felt like we were very, were very underrepresented in, in leadership ways. And when we contribute to 70% of the effort, I feel like that's unfair. So maybe more representation in um, callings or, you know, in, in, in um, leadership ward councils. Um, I think women, especially of a certain generation don't feel like they can speak unless they were spoken to or have ideas. Um, and I just was very vocal. <laughs> so any, anything, anything more than, than what they're doing now, I think would be positive. Okay. Hey, Al, I am going to get back to you with uh, your lunch with this, uh, this worker, this guy at work. We can't use his name, but his dad was a general authority, right? <laughs> yeah, a pretty prominent one. Yes, I met him on my mission. I told you that story. He yeah, that's to, right. To, to address the missionaries at a ward missionary conference. But actually, let me go ahead. Did you have an interesting lunch? Is there anything you want to share about that? You know, yeah, I think that the interesting part of the lunch is that it started out pretty, very emotionally charged. It started out with, um, you know, things that were being said, like, don't you, don't you dare tell me that my dad wasted, uh, all of these weekends away from us and my childhood being spent with my dad on the road. Don't you dare tell me that was all for naught. Like it was, it was kind of these aggressive statements of, you know, look at all the smart, you're, you're telling me you're smarter than all of these incredibly intelligent people that understand and know more about the history than you. It started with statements like that. And it, I just, I wouldn't be baited. I wasn't going to get into a point by point discussion. So I, I didn't. And by the end of it, it was, it was, an, there was an understanding, not an agreement, but there was an understanding of, of we can just disagree and that's okay type of thing. Um, I'm actually really glad with how it ended because it, it didn't end with a, this is going to, 
dampen our relationship at all. It was, it was more, uh, we can move forward and, and just stay away from this topic if we have to. You know, it's interesting, this idea that comes up about general authorities in relation to their children and how they are so often away from home doing church business, visiting missions in Japan to, you know, address people like Radio Free Mormon in the audience. Right. And uh, they're all over the world. They're doing all this kind of stuff. And they end up to a large extent orphaning their kids, at least as far as that is concerned. Yeah, I, it was a, in a perspective that I had never really thought of. And so I was appreciative that he explained that. Uh, um, I also work with um, Elder Ballard's grandson at work. And he is, A, really good at his job, and B, one of the most kind, loving dudes. I'm talking to Elder Ballard's grandson. Uh, I work with him on a daily basis because we share a few uh, accounts. And, and we've had a number of conversations, and he's even asked me things like, you know, what is, uh, what is the perception of post-Mormons uh, on my grandpa? Is he one of the good ones or one of the bad ones? <laughs> We've had conversations like that, which has been really interesting. And Did you tell him that his grandpa is as transparent as he knows how to be? Yeah, that was one of the quotes. I said, look, here's a few of the, <laughs> here's, here's a few of the things that have been difficult. Here's a few of the things that, that I, I've really appreciated that he said and other things that have been hard. And you know, we've got into a pretty good conversation when we were on a business trip and, and yeah, I always really appreciate it. He, he's come to me after every single general conference and said, Hey, uh, how was that for you guys? Was there anything difficult there? I mean, he's, he's just a great dude. That is so nice. The next time you see him, you could recommend he listen to the radio free Mormon podcast titled elder Ballard blows up the church. <laughs> I you remember know. that one? <laughs> I do. Yes. Granddad's name figures in the title. Yeah, that was the uh, the devotional with Elder Oaks, right? Yes, it was either that or it was the promo video that they did for it. We did That's, something yes, on both yes. of those. Yep. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so, Katie, time is running out here, but I do want to ask you this. You deal primarily in your ministry, along with Alan, with other mixed-faith couples, correct? Yes. They don't remain static, do they? In other words, they don't – they didn't eternally remain – faithful Mormons. And then of course, one of them changed to becoming a, well, out of the church. One's in, one's out, right? Mm -hmm. Do they remain that way forever or do, uh, does one of them flip? We've seen almost every outcome at this point. We've seen divorce happen. We've seen them stay. I mean, some of them 20 years have been in a mixed faith marriage. We've seen the husband or the wife come back for social appearances and just kind of sort of completely non-believing, but there to support the spouse. We've seen the other way. We've seen spouses who end up leaving um, also. And so, and now they're both post-Mormon. So we've seen every outcome, um, of couples. Would you say, okay, my perception is that it's probably um, the most common that when you've got a mixed faith marriage, that eventually the one who believes leaves the church along with the non-believing spouse. And I'm not saying all the time at all, but would you say that's the most common outcome? I don't know. What do you think, Alan? Well, I, I think part of it is the length of time that we know people. So I, I'm it would be interesting to, to have some kind of research of what happens over the course of five years. We've been doing it for two years. We know a number of, of, of couples that started mixed faith that we've gone to dinner with, for example, that, that within a year or two, both are out. I'll, I'll say this. I think that 
um, yeah, in some cases they they become post Mormon because they go down the rabbit hole of church history or whatever it might be. I think that a number of them, um, especially like some, fr- I'm thinking specifically of some friends um, in my position. What happens is the gap between them and the church gets bigger and bigger because they feel marginalized. They feel judged at church and they feel like there is no place for them. So rather than leave because they believe what their husband says or they go down the rabbit hole themselves, they, it's a slow fade out because um, they just don't feel like they have a community or they have the support there um, that they're looking for. And and so I, I would I don't want to say that, you know, they've like, they, they completely believe what their spouse believes and that's why they're out again. I think it's, I think for at least my friends, um, that's, that's the path that they take. Okay. I, I know that the church uh, puts a great deal of emphasis on everybody fitting a certain mold. Sure. Yeah. The nuclear okay. family, right? And that would have to do with uh, the mom and the dad, the husband and the wife, both being believing and active, correct? Yes. So if I'm understanding you correctly, let's say the husband leaves, because typically that's what happens, right? I know it's not always the way. I'm just talking about the majority. But husband leaves, wife stays in, and then you're saying that the wife or whoever that believing spouse is going to church every week, taking the kids, ends up feeling like they don't really fit because their their husband has left. Is that right? So that's right. I want to say though, um, I think in the beginning I thought it was mostly men. I you would be surprised at how many how split it is. I mean, I, between in our listenership, you know, I would say like 40 percent of the women are out and sixty percent of the men are out. If yeah, if even if that, and maybe yeah. closer than that. Yeah, I think RFM a big reason why it appears that there are more men uh, out is we tend to connect with those that leave for the same reasons. And a lot of men leave because of history and a lot of women, it's because of social issues that they don't feel like they belonged. I wasn't, I I loved the community, but I was in because it was true. And I think a lot of, a lot of, and men, it's not so clear cut gender, but, but a lot of women would, I mean, a lot of women have said this. I think Katie, you've said this, even if it's not true, I'm still going to stay because I love the community and, and it's my social network. And this is, you know, I, I have good values that come from it and things like that. Okay. So if I heard you correctly, Katie, you talked about sometimes you got a believing spouse and a non-believing spouse and the non-believing spouse will go back into activity in the church And I think you said something about sort of pretending to believe in order to uh, accommodate social issues and family issues. Well, what I was specifically talking about is, for example, like Alan comes to to church with us. He is a full non-believer, but he's there to support me and he's there but Alan is very vocal people. There are many people out there who don't feel like they can be vocal or don't really care to because it's none of, it's no one's business, but they still are showing up at church to support their spouse who's still in, even though they are fully non-believing. Um, that's, that's one of the many relationships we've seen. Yeah, I haven't, we haven't talked to any listeners that have like put the toothpaste back in the tube. No. As it were, like they go back because they believe it all again. No. It's more, they're going to stay active because that's what their family dynamic dictates at the moment. And they want to support their spouse. 
Can I tell you that that's one of the issues that I've had in my 40 years as being a member of the church and really probably almost from the very inception is that there seems to be promoted in the church just by the very culture, a kind of plasticity or a kind of inauthenticity among many of the members. I know I experienced it myself for many years and I know of others who have as well, that there seems to be promoted the idea of we want to present as if we are a certain way, regardless of how it is that we may feel inside. And it seems that in the church, the presentation is more important than the actuality. Uh, I've kind of synopsized this in a in a expression I came up with, that church is a place we go on Sunday to pretend we're perfect. <laughs> Katie, you're nodding your head a little bit. What do you think about that? I mean, we live in the bubble. <laughs> we live in Utah. So yeah, of course, it, there's, there's that cultural drive, you know, oh, you have, you look like the perfect parent. You look, you, you have the look and you act like the perfect family. And that's so damaging. It's so damaging to women who are raising young kids. I mean, husbands who feel like they have to stay or um, do more than they actually can. People who, who can't say yes to callings, but they do anyway, because what will it look like if I don't? Um, one of my hopes is because Alan and I are so transparent, um, we just let people know that this is who we are. And, you know, if you, if you, if we were not accepted, we're not accepted, but more often than not, we call ourselves the, the keepers of secret because people come to us with all <laughs> crazy secrets and things that they feel like they can't speak out loud because otherwise it'll damage the persona that they are currently carrying of perfect family um, fully active believing. And some of them don't even have to do with the church. Some of them are, are actually much, much, much more difficult and, and um, hard to deal with. And, and so, you know, all you can do is know better, do better. You know, we know better now. And so now we can just try and pay it forward and be ourselves with people and accept them for who they are. And if they don't accept us, well, we haven't really found that yet. They weren't our people. Yeah, there's there is a I think pleasantly surprising we we found that that there are huge gifts to being open and transparent and authentic is a word that post Mormons like a lot. Where we're just this is who we are. We're not going to pretend at church. We're not going to pretend anywhere. This is who we are, and that's led to a lot of people trusting us um, that don't even listen to the podcast. Family members. Uh, former missionary companions, et cetera, that, that come and reveal all sorts of crazy stuff to us because they know that we're safe because we're not pretending to be something we're not. Isn't that interesting? Because I've had the same experience and it makes me think, what would happen in the church if the leaders of the church, all the way up to the apostles, did the same thing and just were who they really are and not pretending to be something that frankly, I think, and they know they're not. It'd be interesting. Uh, I, I think, I mean, I think my response is predictable based on my, where my beliefs are. So it's, it may not be that enlightening to hear what I have to think about that, but I think you lose control when you start to admit some of that stuff. Uh, we've seen it because no, the dark, you, but here's the thing, and I'm going to interrupt you, Mr. Predictable, Do it. Gonna, because no, you don't, you gain control. That's the paradox. You Explain lose that by pretending to be perfect and people start realizing you're not 
but you keep pretending and you keep doubling down on perfect, uh, inerrant, doctrinally inerrant, speaking as the mouthpiece for the Lord. And, uh, but you've got that on one side, and then you've got you and Katie on the other side who are now speaking uh, what you really think, what you really feel. And all of a sudden, you've got all these people who are coming to you and sharing their innermost selves with you that they cannot share with other people who are busy pretending to be something they're not. Yeah, but I look at the quantity. I mean, we're, we're working with people on the fringes. And I think that the leadership having the answers, that narrative speaks to the masses. And if they don't mentally or spiritually or emotionally go to the place that maybe they aren't what they claim to be, that that works for a lot of people. Mm. You know, going back to that uh, stages of faith uh, by, um, oh goodness, I forgot his name. But the, um, let's say that again. Fowler. Thank you, Fowler. Yeah. Uh, I think that, you know, in that model, 80% of those never, never go beyond that um, ethnocentricity stage, that it works for 80% of those people. And so the numbers are stacked against authenticity, to be frank. I, well, I, I th- and I want to get to you, Katie, because I am yeah. swinging back to you. But I've got I've just got to say, you know, there is a general authority who is probably the single most popular general authority, at least of this generation. And that is Dieter Uchtdorf. Right. Dieter Uchtdorf, not just because he's good looking. I mean, isn't it strange that in a in a church in which uh, speaking is so important, right? Because you have general conference, you get up, you give talks here, you give talks there, you give televised talks to millions of people. But with all the leaders in the church, in the apostles and in the 70, etc., that the single best speaker in the LDS church today is the one for whom English is not his primary language. Yeah, that is interesting. But the reason I bring him up is because he, every now and again, will say even the smallest little thing that lets the audience know that he's a real person. And here I'm thinking of that cl- that quip he made a number of conferences ago when he talks about doing a, a genealogy or something. And he says, I was doing my genealogy while drinking the diet caffeinated soda <laughs> that shall not be named. That's right. And everybody laughs. And by the way, this was a genuine laugh. This wasn't the obligatory, you know, I've got to laugh at this because the general authority now has said something that he thinks is funny. So we all got to laugh to show we think it's funny. Conference is full of that. But this was a genuine laugh because he connected with people when he tipped his hand that he was being authentic with them. And that's what that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Now, Katie, swinging it back to you. Go. Uh, I was just going to say, I think um, some of our women leaders and not all of them, but certainly a lot of them. um, I don't know if it's because they have like, they're more humble. There's more humility in the way they speak. But I, I really appreciated um, when women speak because I think that they bring a softness, they bring a different approach. Um, You know, they've, they've been through the really hard things with kids. And, and I, I think that some of them just come off as not knowing at all. And I think there was a the talk by sister, I think her name was Amada. Um, she talked about her, her, her dad who killed himself. That was October um, General Conference Women's right. last year, right? I, yes. I can't remember. Anyway, her last, I can't remember her last name, but um, I felt like that was so deeply like personal and moving and, and everything she said and, 
I just, again, that's one of the reasons why I wish we had more um, women voices out there. Cause I think it, it would, I think that women readily admit their shortcomings and, and pitfalls and, you know, mistakes that they've made and how they've, how they've, you know, overcome them or gotten better or whatever. You know, I know that there's this idea that you have to be the perfect mom and you have to, especially for me, you know, you have to stay in the church and you have to bring, you know, get your kids to church every week. And certainly there's those types of messages, but I, I feel like generally speaking, um, women speak really, really well to emotion and to being more humble and showing, showing their, um, vulnerability in their, in their talks. And so, you know, I, like we've been talking a lot about the men leaders of the church, but I think it's important we recognize the the women too for the good job that a lot of them are trying to do. Okay, thank you, thank you for that. Okay, now I know you got to go, but I did ask my listeners if they had any questions for you to ask. I would feel remiss if I did not stand before this congregation today. Where am I? No, uh, I would be ungrateful indeed if I did not ask you some of these questions. Sure. And uh, I just, so this will be the lightning round, okay, at the end of this uh, podcast. Now, Jay Conway was the first guy to come up, and I've got to tell you something. I thought, I love Jake dearly, but I thought his, his question may have been a bit pointed and, oh, somewhat argumentative toward Katie, okay? Most people want to ask you questions, Katie. Alan, they don't care about you. They don't care about me. Katie gets your attention. So I'm just going to read this question the way he asked it, okay, and let you respond to it or about it any way you want. I wanted to give that preface to it so you knew that I wasn't going for the jugular here. Here's what Jake says. Does Katie really not value or want to know what Alan has learned and why if honesty and truth is important? Uh, I'll go on. He, he goes on. So how does Katie feel about testifying of things on her mission that the church now acknowledges aren't true, like Joseph used the peepstone in hat versus the Nephite interpreters to produce the Book of Mormon we have? Those are actually like two or three questions. So I'll let you pick or choose what you want to respond to, Katie. Okay. Um, I think if he's asking, do I feel anger towards the church or upset that I testified of things that I now know are not 100% correct, like first vision, different accounts, et cetera, et cetera. No, I don't. I don't feel upset about it. Um, you know, I was doing my best at the time. I, I just think like there's no, there's no use in going back and being upset over things you can't control. Um, second, I, I don't like the assertion that I haven't learned anything Alan hasn't. Yeah, that's, Jake. That's just simply untrue. Um, I've taken my time in learning a lot of the issues that Alan also has. I mean, I read the CES letter, um, not in full, I think most of it though. I went in and started to look at the Gospel Topics essay. I've done hours and hours of um, research on polygamy. So, you know, whatever feels good to me in the moment, um, I'll, I'll go ahead and do my own research on. So I don't, I don't like that assertion. Um, I think that because we've arrived at different conclusions, um, I don't know why that bothers people so much, but for some reason it does. And that's okay. There's lots of things Alan and I agree on, lots of things that we both um, still disagree on. I appreciate that answer, Katie. Um, is it fair to say, to conclude from what you said, that you're not upset about 
you, what you testified about on your mission, but you do realize now that there may be some discrepancies between what we taught as missionaries, and I'll include myself in that since I was one as well, versus what the church admits to or is acknowledging today. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think that when I think back on my mission, I just have very fond memories of my service and time with people. And Spain was a really, really difficult mission. We had very few baptisms, but the people, um, you know, I do believe that there are a place for missionaries. There are people who are searching for some spiritual enlightenment or, or whatever it might be, something to help them get their life back on track. And so I just think if, you know, if there was any sort of um, help that we provided for them um, and I provided for someone else, I just look at it as a positive. They moved their life in a positive way. Not, I don't look at it as negative at all. Well, Catherine Q joins the queue of questions for Katie. And she posts actually right after Jake. And I think that her first line may have sort of been in response to Jake. She says, I don't want her to feel attacked in any way. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. And I haven't listened to all of their podcasts to know how much this has been addressed already. And it's pretty basic. So I'm sure you'd talk about it anyway, but I'd like to hear from her. What she feels are her own personal strongest reasons for staying. If it's good feelings or family and cultural pressure or just looking at the good things in the church while ignoring all the negative, et cetera. Um, that's a really good question. I have, there's a lot of things I love about the church. I love how, um, family focused it is. I love the idea of an, a pre-earth life. I love the idea of an afterlife. I believe that we will one day see our, see our family. I love teachings of Jesus. I love the community. I feel really confident and comfortable in it. You know, I, I love the idea that for the most part, people are just trying their best. And so I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt wherever they are. And I'm going to let them, you know, come and visit or, you know, let us do visiting teaching. I'm, I'm um, a very service-based person. So you know, while there's lots of organizations out there that Alan and I have both worked with that allow service, um, I really love serving the people that live right here, my neighbors. And you can do that with or without the church. I just feel like the church provides a really good way um, to do that. And, you know, as much as we can say about children in the church, um, I really benefited from the programs and from the people who who um, really like got me on the right path of where my life needed to go, um, at, at least for me. Uh, and so I feel like there are a lot of really good influences on my kids, and I continue to want them to have that as well. Okay, great. Paul Denson writes, he's looking forward to this exclamation point. Not a question, but a comment. Um, Josh Sanders, this is going to be the last one, okay? This is actually okay. the last question that I have. Uh, from my listeners. Um, Josh Sanders writes, what are their thoughts? So this includes you, Alan. We'll go with you first and then to Katie. On receiving a new spouse in the afterlife, well, I think I know what Alan's thought about that <laughs> since he doesn't even believe in the afterlife. Way to, way, way to take away the power from your mission president with that response, by the way. What are their thoughts on receiving a new spouse in the afterlife since the other spouse was not faithful, put in quotation marks there, for the woman being given to another man as a polygamous wife. Oh, I think that means that would be to you, Katie. 
Um, so Alan, is your response just, well, I'm not sure there's an afterlife anyway, or what? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it would be. I think the only thing I would add is that, you know, that, that doctrine feels extremely coercive and manipulative. Oh, hang on a second. Manipulative and controlling. Okay. I mean, it just seems so clearly. What's up? Are you okay? I'm sorry. There's just a big gap there when you said manipulative. But, okay, uh, I'll I'll start over real quick. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, you're fine. Yeah, I, I you know, obviously I don't I don't really believe that there is anything after this life. So that's the simple answer, but the other thought that comes to mind is that that teaching just seems so clearly manipulative and coercive and and, and is devised to get you to do what they want you to do today. I I just don't I, it does not ring true to me whatsoever anymore. Are you talking about eternal marriage now? Yeah, I would. And look, that's, that's Katie knows I've said to her many times, I hope that I get to be with her. I'm doubtful that there's anything after this life, but if there is awesome, we get more time together. Like, that's great. That's uh, me walking away from this belief is not me walking away from wanting to be with her either in this life or the next. And, and I, we're in a place where that's understood now. What do you think about this, Katie? Uh, I just started laughing because um, I don't clearly my one of my biggest issues is polygamy and I don't believe in polygamy. So um, I also believe that we have a choice. So if we get into the next life and I just I just think it's I think we have a choice. So maybe maybe if that's something that is actually taught and done, um, I would say no to it. Uh, I just, I don't really even believe in polygamy. So well, can I ask you this question? Because you know that the president of the church right now, Russell M. Nelson is married to two women in the temple, obviously his first wife uh, who passed away. And now he's married again to a second wife in the temple. Um, so they have eternal marriages. So according to church teaching, he is going to be in the hereafter a polygamist, correct? Uh, if that's what he believes, yeah. Well, I mean, that is the church teaching. Yes, according so, to the teaching. Yeah. So, so I'm, and I'm just getting to you to want to know how you feel about that. Do you think that? Do you think that is the church teaching? Do you disagree? Do you think that um, he will be a polygamist? And if so, it just takes the past of Mormonism and kind of puts it into the present, in a way. Right. I think that for me, I'm just going to speak for me. Um, I, I just don't know. None of us, I mean, for me, I don't know what will happen. If he feels like he has a sure knowledge because he's the president of the church that that's what's going to happen, then that's how he feels. For me, I don't necessarily feel that way. So I, I can't make a judgment on how he feels or his eternal marriage. All I can do is worry about what, like the here and now with me and Alan. So I think it'll just work its way out. I, I'm not even going to worry about it. No, no need to cause myself trauma now when there's nothing we can do about it. Hmm. Um, Katie, I am detecting a suspicious degree of you taking authority for your own self. And by that, what I mean is this. You tell me if you agree, disagree, whatever. Uh, sure. Mormonism, basically, my experience has been... Uh, Asks, asks its members to 
put their authority in the general authorities of the church, right? That there are general authorities, there are local authorities, and we are supposed to depend upon them to tell us what to do, what to think, what to believe. And really, our job is just to do that, to think that, and to believe that. But you've given a couple of answers here, which seem to diverge from that pattern to a certain degree, where regardless of what it is that a leader or even the president of the church might be saying or teaching even in general conference, that you don't necessarily think it's true just because the president of the church might say it, even in general conference. And that's generally understood to be the idea of taking the authority from an outside source and making that authority internal. Do you know what it is I'm, I'm getting at here? I do. I, I do understand what you're saying. Um, you see that in yourself? I, I think it's a good thing, but I, you see that in yourself? So I think that where it's tricky is, you know, I understand that we listen to our leaders and we agree with everything they say, which I mean, that's, I'm just talking very generally, not me in particular, but something we also preach very heavily is personal revelation. And I, and I think that, um, you can definitely receive personal revelation for you. And sometimes, yes, that does go against, um, what a leader may say to you. Uh, and you know, that's just basically how Alan and I have dealt with everything is I feel, um, my personal revelation is my own. And if sometimes that is different than what a leader tells me, I'm going to default to how I feel and because I trust myself. And so if that makes me distrustful of leaders, well, then, I mean, then it does. But it, I would say that, you know, I just, like, I believe in personal accountability and and, and um, revelation. And so I'm just going to always default to that. I will take the ideas or the counsel of leaders into consideration as well. But I'm not going to do anything that I don't feel good or right about. And I think that every person is given that opportunity, even though we maybe we don't tout it enough in our church. I am, and RFM, before you jump in, I, I am, this is one of the luckiest uh, aspects of my personal mixed faith marriage is knowing that that's the approach that Katie takes makes it a lot easier for me when a leader says something and then she goes along with it because I know that she's approaching everything from a personal standpoint. And so I can support her when she needs to do something in the church or agree with something that someone says, even if it's president Oaks, if someone says something and she's like, yes, I'd like to do this or yes, I agree with this. That's fine. That's easier for me because I know that she's putting it through her own filter. Hmm. Very interesting. Finally, finally, Logan Tatham, I'm trying to wrap this up. I know I'm going over. I apologize. You're fine. We're good. We're good. Okay. Logan Tatham posts a picture of himself and wants to know from both of you whether you like his mustache. I responded. I didn't see it. Absolutely, yes. You got to show it Absolutely, to me. yes. I'm guessing you've got to know this guy, right? No, I don't know. I don't you don't know even him know him? No, I just saw, <laughs> I saw it. And, yep. Do they like my mustache. Okay. So Alan likes it. Katie doesn't know because she hasn't seen it, but that's up on my Facebook page. <laughs> um, uh, as long as it's not like a creeper status. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure. It could have a little creep. It, it's, it, it's kind of one of those like BYU student. I have a mustache because that's the only Facebook or excuse me, the only facial hair I'm allowed to have. It's kind of like the seventies porn star stash. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's what it looks like. Oh my gosh. 
Hey, both of you, first off, I'm, I'm wrapping up, but I want to ask both of you, do you have anything else that you want to add before I close up shop here for the day? I'll let Katie have the last word. So I'll start, I'll just say very quickly. This is your way of going first, isn't it? I like how you did that. <laughs> I'll let Katie have the first word as you elbow pastor in line. I'm, I'm so, so sneaky like that. <clears throat> yes, you read, you read into me perfectly. Uh, I, I just want to say two things. The first being that if you are currently in a mixed faith marriage and it is going rough and it's difficult and your marriage still is in question of, I don't know if we can weather through this. Uh, the simple fact that you're not alone hopefully brings you some comfort. Next is when you are both make that decision. And that's really the first decision that needs to be made. When you both make the decision that we're going to get through this, I'm committed to you. You're committed to me. You're going to get through this. That's a great time to reach out to others to see how they deal with priesthood ordinations like we've talked about today, how they deal with church attendance, how they deal with word of wisdom changes and all those types of things. Uh, you can reach out to us. You can listen to the podcast. You can join some Facebook groups, ours included, uh, to, to learn from others. That's the first thing I'd like to say. The last thing, uh, fairly quickly, and, and you better not edit this out, RFM, is I am so appreciative of our friendship, RFM, you and me, that it, it started with just me listening to your podcast and really helping me. And this is, I hope I'm the voice of many people that are listening, that you get to be thanked on the air for so many people that, that don't have this opportunity. So I'm a proxy for them. Uh, your podcast has meant so much for me. And during my faith crisis and transition, it really helped me uh, do some much needed deconstruction uh, in a very healthy way. And then you add the friendship that we have through these phone calls that we've had, and we've had one dinner together. I just want to say thank you for everything that you've done for the community and everything that you've done for me personally. Yeah, RFN, I'm going to say also that I am very appreciative of you because um, for a, a good while, I I was not able to um, really sit in the the really hard discomfort that Alan was going through, and I recognized that he needed people to be support support him. I had lots of people on my side, both in um, family and ward wise, but um, he didn't really have that. And at first, I was a little bit leery of the of him talking to anyone who was out. But um, you know, now I've obviously come to realize how important it was for him to have someone else um, to talk to and to be there for him when I couldn't be there. So just really appreciative of you as well. And, um, you know, I just want to say that um, thank you for giving us the opportunity and the platform to talk about all these things. You know, I don't think I would have agreed to something like this maybe a year ago, but, um, you know, after we did John DeLynn, I thought, well, I can do anything. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, really, um, I, I think that one of the key things that's helped me is I've just given people the benefit of the doubt because I think that, um, leaders, friends, family, people out there, if they 
they really, you know, some of them are just where they are because of how they grew up. And I don't know, when I, when I consider a lot of circumstances of other people, I, I feel a lot of um, sympathy for how they are also feeling. And so we're in this mode of really just trying to bridge, um, build bridges with, with everyone on, on both sides of the aisle. And maybe that's an impossible feat, but right now it feels good doing it. So... Well, thank you both so much. I, I'm glad this, there's no video here because I've been very, very much blushing over all <laughs> this. But thank you, both of you. I love your show. Love you both. Katie, all my listeners want to know, though, are you going to start <laughs> listening to the Radio Free Mormon podcast? Alan, Alan has picked out an episode <laughs> for me to, to go ahead and listen to. That time so, I got molested as a kid. So, oh no, it was a different one. I, yeah, I think we'll go a different route. Yeah, he picked out a oh. different one. So that is uh, high on my priority podcast list to do this week. Okay, well, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, thank you so much, both of you, for coming on the show today. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. That's about all for tonight. Remember, in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, wash your hands frequently with soap and hot water. Stay away from crowds. Maintain good social distancing of at least six feet from the nearest person. If you have to cough, cough into your elbow and not upon your neighbor. And together, we will lick this coronavirus. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. to
whatever.